Firstly, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dal. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to be with you here this morning on this Mother's Day. Um, hands up if you know what that movie was. I'm just curious. Does anyone know? Anyone call out uh, what that movie was? Wow, almost in unison. That's great. It is the famous movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones movie franchise. And what we're looking at is the Ark of the Covenant, not Noah's Ark, which is what our passage is focusing on this morning as we continue our sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, if you've seen this movie or you've read this bit of the Old Testament, you would know that the Ark of the Covenant is a wooden box covered with gold, and it was the symbol of God's presence with his people. Now, in the movie, uh, Indiana is going against the Nazis, who are trying to find the Ark because they're convinced that the Ark will make their army invincible. You see, they see the Ark as the ultimate good luck charm. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 4. That's on page 421 if you've accidentally closed your Bibles. And please remember there'll be a time for questions at the end of the talk. Uh, But before we get into this action-packed part of God's Word, will you please join me as I pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. And I pray now that you help me to explain your Word clearly and faithfully this morning. And we pray as we look at this part of your Word. We pray that you help us to hear you clearly and help us to respond to you rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's pretty common for us as human beings to be like those characters in the movie where we want God's power to work for us, but only when we want it to. So, for example, the person at work who's weighed down by anxieties in the office, in a desperate moment, they might pray. And what do they pray for? For God to help them make the deadline, to get that promotion, or to help them with that difficult staff member. Gravely ill people very often will pray. Now, they may have never prayed before, but illness brings prayers out of many prayerless people. And what do they pray for? Well, that God might make them well again. The student approaching exams is almost as likely to pray like the sick person. And what do they pray for? Well, for God to make the questions easy, their answers good, and the marker generous. But what we'll see from God's word this morning is, we're going to see who God really is. And he's someone that we can't manipulate or control like that. And once we get who he is, just like we heard in the kids' talk, it'll change how we see ourselves and how we treat God. This morning we're going to see four things. We're going to see Israel's lesson about God, that's chapter 4. We'll see the battle between God and Dagon, that's chapter 5. So we see the Philistines' lesson about God, that's chapter 6. Israel getting it right, that's chapter 7. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, once Samuel set around about 3,000 years ago, we're talking around about 1,050 BC. And we saw last week that the nation of Israel is having a leadership crisis. 
There's no king. And everyone is doing as they see fit. And the nation's in shambles. And last week we saw 1 Samuel chapter 1 starts off by focusing the camera lens on one childless woman. The woman Hannah. And God answers Hannah's prayer and Hannah gives birth to a boy called Samuel. Who God will use to fix up this leadership crisis. Well we hit chapter 4. And the camera lens now is widening to look at what's happening at a national level. And we see that there's this conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. And the thing you need to know about the Philistines is they were the arch enemy of Israel. Now verse 2, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines and the Israelites are defeated where we read 4,000 Israelite soldiers are dead. And in verse 3, the elders say, well, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Now, the elders were right in their thinking. They knew their defeat was an act of God rather than an achievement of the Philistines. But what they didn't understand was why. You see, the thing that should surprise us in all this is what the Israelites didn't say. You see, they didn't cry out to the Lord for mercy as they've previously done back in the days of Judges when they were in this situation before. And it didn't enter their minds to think that there was some unresolved sin in their lives. No. The way they answered the why question, well, we see it in the rest of verse 3. When verse 3 they say, Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So instead of any remorse or repentance, no, no, they're they're trying to twist God's arm to bring a victory. And just like the bad guys in Indiana, uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they're viewing the Ark like a lucky rabbit foot. They're thinking, as long as we have the ark, then God will win the battle for us. You see, they are coming to God on their terms, not God's terms. And they're treating God like he's on a leash. Now we read, when the Israelites come to attack a second time, Well, firstly, did you notice the response of the Philistines when they realized that the ark is on their territory? Uh, Please read with me the second half of verse 7 and 8. They say this. Second half of verse 7. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no. Nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. It's interesting here, isn't it? That the Philistines at this point, they've got it right about God. Where Israel, they didn't. You see, the Philistines, they recognized who God really is. That this is the one who rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians. And because of that, you notice their response. They were afraid. Now you think the Israelites are being confident 
the Philistines have been really scared. What the story is all leading towards an Israelite victory. But we see in verse 10, it goes the other way around. And this time, 30,000 Israelite soldiers are now dead. That's eight times worse than the last time. But to make matters worse, the ark is captured by the Philistines. And given that this is the first time that the Ark of the Covenant is outside of Israel's possession, well, Israel has now hit a new low. You see, chapter 4 is telling us that you can't treat God lightly. He can't be manipulated. You can't harness God's power through what you do. If the Ark couldn't guarantee Israel's safety, then, well, no religious act will do it. And in the same way, uh, my church attendance, uh, my Bible reading, my giving, whatever religious activities I practice, they can't manipulate God's power to bring me success or prosperity or happiness. God's power isn't like that. Because God's power is God's power. It's owned by Him. And it's at His disposal, not ours. We can't think like the Israelites. As long as I've I've done this for God, then He would... Can I ask you? Are you like the worker, the sick person, the student that I described earlier? where you only pray to God when there's a crisis. But when the crisis is over, you have nothing to do with Him. How do you see God? Is He just a lucky rabbit foot to you? Well, we now hit chapter 5. And the Philistines have taken the ark home And now they're acting like the Israelites back in chapter 4, where they're now mistreating God. And they treat the ark like a moose head, like a trophy. And like all trophies, you take it straight to the pool room. And their pool room for the Philistines was the temple of their god Dagon in the city of Ashdod. And we read verse 3, the next day, Dagon falls flat on his face as if positioned as if he was bowing down to the ark. And the hilarious thing of all this is that the Philistines, they have to lift their mighty Dagon back to his feet because Dagon can't do it himself. Well, next day, verse 4. Dagon hits the dirt again, but this time his head and his hands are cut off. Now you see, God's proving what happened that previous night, it wasn't a coincidence. And if Dagon wasn't, was powerless before, well, it's really clear now. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 6, God brings devastation and tumors to the whole city. And the narrator wants to make it really clear, the, the stark contrast between Dagon and God. Where Dagon doesn't have his hands anymore. Whereas the hand of God is heavy 
on the people of Ashdod. And the handless Dagon can't do anything about it. Now the men of Ashdod, they make the connection between the the tumors, the smashing of Dagon, and the presence of the ark. And so, like the Israelite elders back in chapter 4, they call a meeting to work out what to do next. And the, king of the, the kings of the five Philistine cities, they call a crisis meeting. Now, if you were present at that crisis meeting, what would you have proposed? Well, it was decided to move the ark to the nearest city of uh, Gath. And I'd love to know what the king of Gath thought about this. I imagine uh, that crisis meeting going like this. The king of Ashdod says, Hey, I put a motion that we move the ark to the city of Gath. All in favor, put your right hand up. And four hands go up. All against, one hand goes up. But you know, one thing is clear in all this. At this stage, the Philistines have no intention of letting go of the ark. They still want to control God. Well, in verse 8, what happened in Ashdod happens at Gath. You see, God's doing a tour of the Philistines, striking them down town after town. Now, when gets decided to move the ark from Gath to Ekron, oh, the people of Ekron, they jack up. Hey, we don't want this thing here. The ark's going to kill us. And so verse 11, the five Philistine kings call another meeting and they change their minds and they send the ark back to Israel. Uh, It's the act of complete surrender. They're waving the white flag as they recognize that God isn't to be messed with. And that brings us to chapter 6. Where the Philistines, they send the ark back with five golden rats and five golden tumors, a physical tribute to recognize their place before God. And that the God of Israel is the real God. You see, these Philistines, they've learned the hard lesson, which the Israelites learned in chapter 4. You can't manipulate God because he's simply bigger than what you think. And as we stand beside these five Philistine kings, as they see the ark make its way to Beth Shemesh, uh, we see that God is all-powerful. That he's the one who's bring, who brings total reversal. Where God has brought humiliation, but has turned it into triumph. And as we stand with the Israelites, and as we see the ark coming up the hill, well, we recognize that God is all-powerful, that he's got all things in his control, and that it's not ultimately up to us to make God's plans happen. You know, the, ark of the, the, the story of the ark we see in these chapters, actually a picture that points to God's greatest defeat over his greatest enemies, which is sin and death. That's when the the Lord Jesus died on the cross. You see, that was the moment in history where it seemed like the enemy's God had gotten away with it. When Jesus was being crucified, 
it was like when the ark was being taken captive. And when you look at the cross initially, it seems that he's the one that's being defeated. But early on another morning, something happened in the tomb where they laid him, which leaves the surprise in Dagon's temple far behind. The Bible tells us that the one who looked defeated was in fact the powerful victor. And just like how Gog conquered the Philistines himself, Jesus conquered our sin himself. That we don't have to wear the penalty of sin anymore. That we can now have new life of victory over sin and death. But for us to share in that victory, it comes to us by the same way that we've seen in this passage. It's recognizing who God is and coming to God on his terms, not ours. You see, the Israelites were deluded to think they could just rest on God's promises while paying no attention to his terms. You see, in the same way, we can't just put trust in God's grace towards us in Jesus and ignore God's terms for him to be in our lives. You see, you can't have Jesus Christ as Savior without having him as your Lord as well. Again, it all starts with having the right view of who God is. Can I ask you, where are you at with God? Have you trusted God on his terms? Now, if you're here and you haven't got that real relationship with God yet, Well, let me encourage you to consider coming to God on his terms, to trust Jesus as the boss of your life. And if you want to find out more about this, please make sure you chat to myself or Peter M. or Carmen over morning tea this morning. But you know, trusting the sovereign God is actually a lifelong journey. And it applies to everything in life, where we recognize how powerful God is and how weak We really are. Now I reckon people who we live here in the inner west, it's easy for us to think that because we're so competent, and to a point we are, but we think we can control all aspects of our lives. And we forget that it's God who ultimately controls the outcome. God will always have his way. And I reckon it's important for us to reflect on our plans, our strategies, our goals in life, to see whether our energetic activity treats God like Dagon, a God that has no hands. Is it possible that some of our exhaustion or frustration or our endless busyness, or our difficulty to find contentment, or even just the inability to relax. Do they come about because of how we see God? And the wrong idea that we think that it's solely up to us. The truth is, we serve the God who's immeasurably powerful. His victory doesn't depend on me or you any more than it depended on those Israelites. 
And when we see rightly who God really is, then how we live all of our lives, whether it's at work, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our studies, even how we bring up the kids, and especially in the challenges and problems that we face in life, we can know that it's ultimately up to him to bring about his plan. And the key thing for us is to trust him, to respond to him in humility and repentance, and to let him take first place in our lives. Now that brings us to chapter 7, where we'll see the Israelites doing just that. Now we didn't read it, I didn't get Dave to read it for us, but let me briefly give you the background of chapter 7. It's been 20 years now, and during that time the ark has been in cold storage. And the Israelites have started worshipping other gods. But in verse 2, something has clicked for them. They want to turn back to God. And Samuel who we haven't heard these past three chapters, he steps up and leads in a way that's not like his predecessor, Eli, or his two sons. Uh, Please turn the page to 425. And please check out what Samuel says to the nation of Israel in verse 3, where chapter 7, verse 3, says this. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts... Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So how did the Israelites respond this time? Well, in verse 4 we see they did what he said. They got rid of their idols, they confessed their sin to God And they fasted before him as an act of repentance. And so while the Israelites were praying and fasting, the Philistines, they see that and go, hey, this is a great opportunity to attack them. And we find in verse 7 that when the Israelites hear this, their response, they were afraid. Now notice that the response of fear is so different to how they responded back in chapter 4, where they were overconfident, where they were arrogant, where they were presumptuous. You see, there's a new humility in Israel now. They know, they know better now. Well, check out what happens next in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. says this. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. You see, Israel's finally seeing God as they should. They're finally trusting him as they should. And God answers their prayer. And just like in chapters 5 and 6, We see that God's the one who does all the saving. Uh, Please check out verse 10 of chapter 7. It says this. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. 
So what we see here is a total reversal of what happened in chapter 4, where this time the Israelites were victorious and the Philistines were the ones who got slaughtered. You see, what we see in chapter 7 is what the Israelites should have done back at chapter 4. It's letting God be God in all aspects of their lives. Not just the bits they just want Him to work on. And the same thing is for us. We're not meant to select where God's sovereignty is to work in our lives. No, He wants all of us. Because when we get it right about God, about who He is, it will change how you see yourself, and it will change how you approach life. Are you like the Israelites in chapter 7? Or are you like the Israelites back in chapter 4? How are you treating God at the moment? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Almighty Lord, that you have everything under your control, and that you're the one that we need to take seriously. We thank you that because of your love, that you've taken upon yourself to save us from our enemies of sin and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll keep growing our understanding of you, that we might see you rightly, that we might treat you as you deserve. And we pray that you will change us, that we'll be a people who have you first in our lives. And we pray you'll keep growing our trust in you as we live our lives for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.